Church family, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We're during our Advent series. Remember I told you the word Advent literally means coming. And there are, are about a half dozen times in the Gospels in which Jesus says, I came too. So he's literally telling us the purpose of his first Advent. And we're going to see he's going to give us hope for his second Advent. We're going to see the second of those here in the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. You'll find this particular phrase that I'm referring to in verse 10. So we'll get there. We'll read the first 10 verses together. Luke chapter 19, very famous story. I've always wanted to preach it and never have. He entered Jericho and was passing through, Jesus being. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. And here's our phrase. For the Son of, God, for the son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are that Jesus came for us. The laws that are being described, there is me, it's us, it's together. It's not just Zacchaeus, it's not just Luke, it's, it's us. That regardless of where we've been or what we've done or who we're known as, that Lord, the Lord Jesus came and he came for us. And so God, I pray, I pray that every person here would just rejoice in the good news of the gospel. I pray that the beauty of the gospel would be unfolded before us in clarity and in high definition, maybe in a way that we've never seen it before. And I pray, oh Lord, that someone perhaps is here, they don't even know why they're here, that today, oh Lord, you would meet them with Jesus and save them. So Lord, I pray that the saved would be edified and encouraged, and I pray that the lost would come to faith in Christ today. And we ask these things now in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I was in the fifth grade the first time I ever remember being aware of my clothes at all. One of my friends came up to me and he said, this person in our class had said that Cody needed some shoe advice. Okay? Now I was 10 years old and never before in my life had I thought about my shoes. Okay? But I remember looking down and just being humiliated and embarrassed now look my shoes were fine okay my mama didn't send me to school with bad shoes but my shoes were just the way that a rambunctious outside loving little boy's shoes look after a few months of wear right but I was so embarrassed and I was so just humiliated in front of my whole class and I remember I went home and of course I I told my mama right because that's what we do I went home and I told my mama and she was more upset about it than I was I think and it was Christmas time and I'll never forget this. My mom, with tears in her eyes, she goes back, and she, wherever she had my presents hidden, because she'd already bought me a pair of shoes. My mom comes out, and y'all, she's got a pair of Nikes with her, and they are bad. You know what I'm saying? 
They are awesome. They are awesome. And I remember putting on those high top Nikes. By the way, high tops are back in. I didn't even know this. I put those jokers on, and I strolled in to Miss Hubbard's fifth grade class the next morning like I was James Dean. I mean, chest out, walking with a strut like a baller, you know? One of the worst feelings in the world is when you feel like an outcast in the midst of a group of people that you want to belong, isn't it? And yet, it's a universal experience that all of us, it doesn't matter how handsome you are, how pretty you are, how smart you are, how athletic you are, it doesn't matter how well you've done on your test or well you've done in your company, at some point, at some point, every person is going to know the sting of what it means to not be accepted, the sting of feeling like an outcast. And I actually think that our experience as an outcast can serve to highlight for us the beauty of the gospel because, you see, Jesus came for the outcast. And Jesus, in coming for the outcast, actually became an outcast himself. And there's nobody in the New Testament that this seems to matter more to than the author of the Gospel of Luke, the physician. See, Luke was a Gentile. Luke was the kind of man that felt like an outsider looking in on the promises of God. And so there is a unique feature of his gospel that stands apart from Matthew, Mark, or John. That most of the gospel, the other gospels, they highlight Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Then they highlight Jesus in Jerusalem where he's ultimately crucified. But you don't have a lot of the in-between time. Except in the gospel of Luke. Luke actually had, de- devotes the largest portion of his gospel from chapter 9 verse 51 to chapter uh, t- uh, 19 verse 10 where we are today. To this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now what's remarkable is the list of characters. And the list of parables that Jesus tells during this particular time. He tells of a, a poor man Lazarus and the prodigal son. He, tells, he, he heals a disabled woman and a, a blind beggar. He heals a Samaritan leper. He, he saves Zacchaeus. He tells the story of poor Lazarus. So much so that this section of the Gospel of Luke has come to be known by scholars as the Gospel to the Outcast. The gospel to the outcast. And so this morning what I want us to see is I want us to see from Luke's gospel here in this crescendo moment at the very end of the gospel to the outcast. The main point that he's driving through and what that means for us. So what is the gospel to the outcast? It means that Jesus seeks the lowest. Jesus seeks the lowest. Uh, You know, it's interesting how friendships are formed, isn't it? Friendships aren't really planned. You ever thought about that? If you think about the majority of the friendships that you have, it's just really the result, usually, of you showing up in the same place over and over and over again with the same group of people being there, whether it's at work or at school or or whatever, maybe at church. But you show up at the same place with the same people over and over again, and eventually you begin to find some common ground, you begin to have some inside jokes, and before you know it, you're friends. You know, I've, I've probably told you before about the way that Andrew and I became friends. God had called Megan and I to a new church. This was 15 years ago. God had called Megan and I to a new church, and Andrew just happened to be standing out, uh, or serving on staff there. And honestly, Andrew and I probably didn't get off to the greatest start in the whole wide world. I was young and cocky, and he was young and cocky, and you know how that thing goes, right? And and so we end up, but we end up at a Zaxby's. Okay, Megan and I go after a Wednesday night. We end up at a Zaxby's. And Andrew gets uncomfortable probably me telling the story. We end up at a Zaxby's, and we're sitting there, and here comes Andrew squealing into the parking lot in his little Ford Ranger that he had at the time. And he comes in, and 
Megan and I invite Andrew to come and eat at the table with us. Well, you know, I do what preachers do. I ask the blessing over the food, right? And I begin to pray and thank the Lord. And I'm in the middle of just a, you know, I don't want to say a standard blessing, but you understand what I'm saying, right? Thanking the Lord for our daily bread. And all of a sudden, in the middle of my prayer, amen! Praise God! Testify! And I thought, what in the world is this? And I'll be honest, I just started laughing. And such a beautiful friendship was born. And despite, despite our irreverent and cracked foundation of our friendship, you know, it's not lost on me that here we are 15 years later leading a church together with a unique complement of personality and giftings that it felt so, so very random in that Zaxby's all those years ago. But I think what the Bible actually teaches us is that there are no incidental meetings. That it was an arrangement by the Almighty that a friendship would be born that would lead to fruitfulness in the ministry, even, even if, I'm not saying the Lord arranged him amening my blessing, that's all I'm saying. But it was a divine appointment. I genuinely believe that. When we come into Luke chapter 19, Luke is really setting us up here, okay? First of all, he, teaches, he, he tells about Jesus. He says, he entered into Jericho. I mean, is there a plainer statement in all the Bible? And what is he doing? He's just passing through. So what does that sound like? It sounds like this is one of those hole-in-the-wall interstate towns that you stop and go to the Bucky's, right? Like, this is a nowhere. And it just sounds like Jesus is just coming through. And, and Luke is setting all of this up to look like happenstance, to look as though it's just arbitrary and random and insignificant. And then we're introduced to a second character. We're introduced to a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Now, we're told a couple of things about Zacchaeus. First of all, we're told that he is the chief tax collector. Now, he's not just a tax collector, he's the chief tax collector. If you were here with us last week, when we saw the call of Matthew, we heard about what bad, scummy guys the tax collectors were. They were the robbers. They, I, I referred to Matthew as being like a first century member of the mafia, right? Well, if Matthew was in the mafia, then Zacchaeus was the mob boss, okay? He was the top guy. That Zacchaeus was the guy that was so good at robbing his fellow countrymen that Rome said, you know what? We're going to put you in charge of all the crooks. Like, you're the lead guy. So we're being presented Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is literally being presented, to use a phrase that Paul uses, as the chief of sinners. The worst of the worst, the darkest of the dark, the scummiest of the scummy, like the literal people that repulse you when you walk by them, right? That's not all that we're told about him. We're also told that he was rich, that he was rich. Now, that may not seem very consequential to us when we read that, except one chapter before, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says something that's still lingering in the minds of the readers when they come into chapter 19. What does he say? He says, you know what? It would be easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So here's Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is the chief of sinners, the worst of worst, the scummiest of scummy, the, the mob boss. And because of that, he has literally swindled people out of all their money so that he's rich. If it's hard for a rich man to go to heaven, how hard is it going to be for this guy to go to heaven? And so Zacchaeus was low, figuratively, 
It turns out he was low, literally. He was a short little man, right? We, we all know this. A wee little man was he, right? And so Zacchaeus decided he wants to go, and he wants to see Jesus, and he climbs up in a sycamore tree. Now, the picture that I have in my mind, if you've ever seen those old clips of, of President Kennedy coming in the motorcade through uh, Dealey Plaza there in Dallas, and everybody is kind of finding their place on the sidewalk so that they can get a glimpse of the president, right? That's the picture that's here with Jesus, that Jesus here has crowds that are just thronging upon him. He's been known for miracles and healings and profound teachings. He's teaching with an authority that they've never heard before. And so Jesus is really in like a rock star phase of his ministry where everybody wants to hear, see a glimpse of this man from Nazareth that is doing the remarkable. And so there's a crowd and they're all finding their place and Zacchaeus can't find his place. And so he, he climbs up to the top of the tree. Now, the implication here that Luke is setting us up to believe is, first of all, Zacchaeus is unlikely to be noticed by Jesus at all. And if he's noticed by Jesus, he's not going to be known by Jesus. But if Jesus does figure out who Zacchaeus is, he's probably not going to be liked very much, right? This is all being set up for us in the narrative by Luke. And so Jesus, who's just happening by Jericho, who's just happenstance has brought him to this particular sleepy town on this particular night, this, this little crossroads where the chief tax collector lives, he turns the corner, and it's as though he already knows Zacchaeus is up in the tree. Jesus makes eye contact, and he says, and he calls him by name, a man that it doesn't appear that he's ever met before in his life. And Jesus calls out, and he says, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, why in the world are you up in that tree? Won't you come down? And what is Luke telling us? Oh, Zacchaeus thought that he was going to look for Jesus. But Jesus had come to Jericho looking for Zacchaeus. You see, we think we're looking for Jesus, but Jesus is the one that has come looking for all of us. That this wasn't happenstance after all by the mere fact that he knows the name of the man hanging out up in the tree. This is proof that this is a divine appointment, a friendship that was intended by God and arranged by God to come to be. Reminds me of, I hope this is okay that I use you guys' names, but it reminds me of the friendship that Daniel Nance and Dustin Patterson have formed. I knew Daniel before a lot of y'all knew Daniel. And what I've always known, Daniel's an intense guy. He loves to study. And Daniel was really believed that the Lord had called him specifically to study apologetics. So Daniel committed himself. And what Daniel believed is Daniel believed that the Lord was going to use him for, to go and to lead uh, evangelistic movements or uh, movements to be able to win over skeptics on college campuses. And these were plans that, that were so pure-hearted and, and righteous, but never came to fruition. And I know, and you can talk to Daniel about this, led to a lot of frustration in him. And then one day, a few years ago, Daniel finds himself just leaned up against a fence at a little league, part, at a little league practice. And leaned up against that same fence is a man named Dustin, who is an atheist. But Dustin loves to talk. And Daniel loves to talk. And it turns out that, du that Daniel, though he believed he was preparing for something, had been preparing for this very moment all of his life. And within a couple of months, you know what happened? We baptized Dustin. We baptized Dustin. Now, it seems like happenstance that they just leaned up against the same fence on the same day. It just seems like happenstance that... Daniel had been preparing and studying so that he could defend the faith and give credibility to the faith and give an intellectual account of the faith. But when you put all the story together, brothers and sisters, can you say anything other than through Daniel, Jesus had come looking for Dustin? 
You know, I don't really know why you're here this morning. Some of you may be here because you were drugged to church this morning by your mom or your daddy. Some of you, you may be here because this is just what you're supposed to do. And you have some sense of duty or obligation. You may be here because your wife makes you, your husband makes you come. You may be here because you just, you're out of hope and you didn't know where else to go. And so you just thought you'd give this a shot. Can I just tell you? This morning, you're not here randomly. Your appearance in our church is not arbitrary. It is not, it is not just some random happenings. of the, You are here because Jesus is looking for you. That even today, there's a divine appointment that you would hear the good news of the gospel for the outcast. You see, there are no incidental meetings and there are no insignificant invitations. Jesus really responds to Zacchaeus in a very strange way when you think about it, doesn't he? I imagine that when Jesus called out to Zacchaeus, it probably, when Zacchaeus heard his name, sent a chill down his spine, right? I mean, Zacchaeus has the most infamous and notorious name in all of Jericho. Nobody wants to hear Joe, know about Zacchaeus. And so he has to assume that if the Messiah, if the rabbi, if the teacher is going to say anything to him and knows him by name, that what he's going to do is he's going to undress him and excoriate him and humiliate him before the crowd. Look at verse 5. Jesus says something instead that's very strange. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down. What? I must stay at your house today. Jesus does to Zacchaeus what you don't ever do to a southern woman, right? He invites himself over right into the house. Now, we, we might be prone to believe that this looks like being very forward or perhaps even unpolite. But I want you to think about what this meant. When Zacchaeus heard those words from Jesus, he heard words that he wouldn't have heard from anybody else in all of Galilee. Zacchaeus, I want to be with you. Zacchaeus, I want to spend my time with you. Zacchaeus, I don't care that it hurts my reputation. I don't care that it ruins my standing. I don't care that it lowers my social status. I don't care what the Pharisees think or the Sadducees think or the temple thinks. I don't care that everybody else says that you make them unclean. I don't care. Zacchaeus, I want to hang out with you. But Jesus shows that he is willing to be guilty by association. But there's something else there. If you go back to the beginning of the gospel to the outcast and you look there in Luke chapter 10... During that same section, the same section in which you're seeing this journey of from, from, uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem, this gospel, there's something else that's happening in that same period of time. And what you're seeing and glimpsing is really Jesus' apprenticeship of his disciples. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure and what their ministry is going to look like after he leaves. And so there in Luke chapter 10, what he does is he sends out 72 disciples. Not just the, the inner circle 12, but 72 of his disciples. He sends them out two by two, and he tells them something strange. He says, if you come to a house, and that house will receive you, go in and stay in that house and declare that peace has come and visited that house, in indicating that now that house is a part of the kingdom of God. But then he says what? If that house rejects you, if that house will not receive you, if that house is not hospitable toward you, knock the dust off of your feet, for peace will not visit that house. In other words, they will be excluded from the kingdom of God. So what we see in Jesus' forward inviting of himself into the home of Zacchaeus is really an invitation to Zacchaeus to come and to join in the kingdom of God and be one of his own disciples. You see, there is no person 
There is no person that Jesus will not receive so far as that person will receive Jesus. There is no person that Jesus will not receive so far as that person will receive Jesus into their home. Jesus has proven through the cross, if nothing else, that he is willing to be guilty by his association with you. The question is, the question is, will you receive him? Will you receive him? Perhaps you think, but you don't know how notorious my name is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people say behind your back when you're walking down the street. It doesn't matter how infamous you are for your divorce or for your affair. It doesn't matter how notorious you are for your, your swindling business practices and poor business, business ethics. It doesn't matter that you feel like you're the poor and unseen. It doesn't matter that you don't have the nicest house or the nicest clothes or that you're behind on your bills or have too much debt. It doesn't matter how you've wronged your parents or how they've wronged None of that matters. The only thing that matters is will you receive Christ? And if you will receive Christ, regardless Regardless of where you've been or who you are or what you've done or what your name represents, Jesus will have you. You see, even if you are the worst, the good news about the gospel of the outcast is that Jesus changes the worst. Jesus changes the worst. I, I think that Luke chapter 19 is meant to ask a question that comes up in Luke chapter 18. That in Luke chapter 18 you have that famous scene. In which the rich young ruler comes and asks Jesus how he can have eternal life. And Jesus really has a strange response to him, doesn't he? The, the ruler comes up and he's obviously a, a picture. He's a poster boy of what it would have been like to be a Jewish man at that time. He was the essence of what they believed the Messiah wanted everybody to be in their understanding. And so he comes up and he's all, apparently already, even at a young age, become a, an elder in the synagogue. It means he was held in high esteem. He's, he's wealthy, which means that in their uh, worldview that he had experienced great blessing from God and favor from God. He even goes so far as to say, I have kept all of the Ten Commandments since I was a boy. And what does Jesus say to him? Well, there's one thing that you lack. There's one thing that you lack. Go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come up and follow me. And what does the man do? He leaves bitter. The man leaves very sad because he had great wealth, and he was not willing to let go of his wealth. And it absolutely dumbfounds the disciples. And Peter, the spokesman of the disciples, speaks up and he says to Jesus, we'll have it there on the screen, then who can be saved? Like, if that guy's not saved, if that guy's not in the kingdom, if you don't want him, and he's got everything, this is a five-star player, man. Like, he is number one on ESPN's top 100. Like, he's the guy. He's the guy. He is a grade-A prospect. And you don't want him? Then Jesus, what good is a fisherman like me? What good is a tax collector like me? Like, if, if he's not going to be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus responds again very strangely. He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is impossible with God. In other words, what he's showing us here in Luke chapter 19 is the answer to the question that's been asked. Who can be saved? Jesus can literally save anybody. He can save the worst. The rich isn't a problem. Jesus can save the rich. Not only can Jesus save the rich, but Jesus can save a rich tax collector. Jesus can save a man who came about his wealth in the most unethical way possible. That Jesus can do the impossible. That Jesus can even change the worst. And he does this by changing what we love, see. He does this by... The rich young ruler and Zacchaeus really have the same problem. They have the same problem. It just manifests in different ways. 
For the rich young ruler, it manifests in his desire to diversify his portfolio and be able to add eternal life, but an unwillingness to let go. He's, he's trying to prove how impressive he is and cut all, uh, have all of his uh, eyes dotted and his T's crossed. For Zacchaeus, it manifests as stealing and swindling and trying to uh, accumulate great worth. But at the center, they both have the same operating center, selfishness, self-reliance. Living to make sure that they take care and get what they want and to secure what they believe will ultimately bring them peace and security and happiness. And that's what all of us have in common this morning. All of us have those things in common. Those are the things that we're looking for. But the difference between the rich young ruler who goes away bitter and sad and Zacchaeus who received him joyfully, who receives the joy of Christ, is their response to the invitation of Jesus. You see, what did the rich young ruler see? When Jesus told the rich young ruler, yeah, absolutely, you can have eternal life, sell all of your goods and give it to the poor and come and follow me, what Jesus was doing is he was cutting to the heart of his idol. For the rich young ruler, his relationship with God was based on his wealth. And his security and his happiness was found in the money that he had. That it, it meant that he was somebody and it meant that he was not, didn't have anything to worry about. It meant that not only did he not have anything to worry about, but all of his family was secure. It, it showed happiness and peace and security was all, were all assured for him by his wealth. And he couldn't for a second think that he could let go of it. But for Zacchaeus, when he found Jesus... He realized that all of those things that he'd been searching for by purchasing, all those things that he had been searching for by swindling, all of those things that he thought money would provide for him were actually found in the person of Christ. And so now what happens? Now what happens is he can take, and all of that, which was once his favorite, he can take half of it and he can just give it away. We're seeing the transformation of a man. That which he once would still to obtain, now he can give freely from his own coffers. But what we're seeing in Zacchaeus is the dismantling of an idol. The dismantling of an idol. And this is what it always looks like when we come to the person of Christ. Can I ask you, what do you live for? And what do you love? Are you like the rich young ruler? Do you love money? You may probably never in a million years say it out loud, sure. But honestly, how much of your life is centered around earning money and saving money and spending money and nurturing your money and making sure that you have enough money? So much so that you might feel like your peace and your security and your happiness are actually tied to your nest egg. Brothers and sisters, is that not how we're supposed to talk about Jesus? Does that not reveal in us an idol? But it doesn't have to be your money. It can be your status in the community. It can be your position in the company. It can be even something as wonderful as your own family. What do you live for and what do you love? Because if it's anything other than Jesus, what you have is an insecure happiness and an insecure peace that is apt to leave and abandon you in a second. That what you actually have is you have an idol in your life that Jesus has come that you might be transformed and set free. Because you see, when Jesus changes what we love, he changes how we live. When Jesus changes what we love, he changes how we live. There's something really subtle here that if our experience with the big story really helps us to unpack and to understand. You, do you remember what we said the purpose of the new covenant was? 
The new covenant was to come in and it was to transform your life so that, so that now you don't keep the law that God would be approved of you. You keep the law because you want to keep the law. Because you love to keep the law. Because you love God. And God has transformed you. He sent your spirit. And he's given you a new heart, remember? He took away from you the heart of stone, given you a heart of the flesh, caused you to walk in my statutes. This was Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. Remember all this, right? We've, we've just covered this in the big story. See, something remarkable happens with Zacchaeus. It says, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Fourfold. Now, first of all, what we're seeing is that for Zacchaeus, his repentance wasn't theoretical. His repentance wasn't just something that he did in his head that never actually had any practical bearing in his life. That his, his repentance was real and that Zacchaeus was committed to making his repentance at least as notorious as his sin had been. And I think that's a good principle for us. But this idea of the fourfold, did you know that this isn't chosen at random? That Zacchaeus is not just being hyperbolic and saying, I'm going to give them back a whole, whole lot. It's actually found in Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and, it kill, and kills or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox or four sheep for a sheep. That what do we see in Zacchaeus' life? We see the new covenant coming to bear. What does Zacchaeus want to do? He doesn't just want to be right with Jesus. He wants to keep the law. He's had a complete transformation of what he loves. And now it's completely transformed how he lives. Before, he hated the law. The law was oppressive to him. The law excluded him. But now he loves the law. And he wants to obey the Lord. Because he's met Jesus. And Jesus has changed everything. See, Jesus, he'll take you exactly as you are. Exactly as you are. You don't have to clean up first. You better not. You don't have to go and, and fix everything first. You don't have to fix the relationship with your ex-wife, or your current wife, or your current husband. You don't have to make everything right with your kids yet. You don't, you don't have to do any of that stuff yet. Jesus will take you exactly as you are. But you better believe he will never leave you that way. He will never leave you that way. That Jesus has come in and he has come in to transform you from the inside out. To change what you love and what you desire and ultimately what you do. That Jesus comes and he receives you. And he receives you and sends you back out as a different man or as a different woman. As now a new creation that wants to bring glory to his name. That loves him. Who is secure in their joy. That's how a greedy man becomes a generous man. That's how a selfish man becomes a selfless man. By the transformation inwardly of Christ. So that it now is expressed outwardly in their lives see the question this morning is not just do you like the story of jesus my goodness at christmas time don't we all just love the story of jesus we ought to love the story of jesus but the question is not do you love the story of jesus and the question is not even do you think the gospel is beautiful Oh, I think there's no story like the gospel story when it's told well. When you hear the story of the gospel painted for you in the splendor of all God's glory, there is no story more beautiful than that. But that's not all that we're asked. The question that's being presented here is will you invite Jesus into your house so that he can rearrange all the furniture? Will you receive him joyfully in the way that Zacchaeus did so that now all of your priorities and all of your values and everything that you're living for has been totally stripped, upside, flipped upside down so that now Jesus is at the center of it. So that now all of your family and all of your activities and all of your finances and all of the things that you do and places that go and the way that you present, all of them are now oriented and calibrated to the centrality and supremacy of Christ in your life. What Zacchaeus discovered was freedom, y'all. He discovered freedom. 
He didn't need money. Money had actually ruined his life. He thought it was going to bring security. It just brought ruin. He didn't need all the relation. He, he didn't need all the standing in the Sanhedrin. He thought he needed that. He didn't need all of that stuff. All he needed was Jesus. And now he knew that he had Jesus. So it didn't matter the other stuff. The other stuff just became a means to the ends of bringing glory to the name of Jesus. Can I ask you, are you there? Hey, are you there? Will you receive Jesus into, his house, into your house so that he can rearrange all of the furniture of your life so that now he is the blazing center of everything that you do? Because you see, Jesus blesses the cursed. When you do that, when you accept his invitation, when you recognize that you hadn't just been looking for him, he's been looking for you, and now he invites you. He invites himself to come into his house. If only you will receive him. When you do, you discover the best news in the world. You were once cursed, but now you can be blessed. It's a bad feeling when you find yourself in a room and you know you don't belong in that room, right? Last year, I, uh, it, Jeremy, if he's in here, he, he, he was there. I was invited to go to this pastor's training for, abuse, for uh, uh, drug misuse. And I went to this conference and look, I, it, was like a, it was like a Friday, it was my off day. I didn't really think much of it. And so I just threw on some clothes that I had, and I walked into the room. And when I walked into the room, I wanted to just crawfish straight up out of there, okay? I turned the corner, and every single, the, the room, it's, the, it's at the uh, Oxford Civic Center, and the entire gymnasium is just filled to capacity, okay, with pastors. And every pastor in there is in a three-piece suit. I mean, a three, like two the nines. Like, they got their hair like they like it. They all just went and got their hair done. They got their nails. I mean, they, 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 they looking good, right? Like, suits are pristine. Everybody looks like they've just stepped out of, like, Preachers Today magazine or something. Like, if that's a thing. I'm wearing a shirt with sailboats on it. Sailboats. Okay? And so, here I am. I've got on jeans and a shirt with sailboats on it. And I'm surrounded by men in three-piece suits. And I thought, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> one of these things just does not belong. Right? And I was sitting there in this room and just completely humiliated. Can I give you good news? There's no person that doesn't belong with Jesus. There's no person. That's at the forefront of what Luke is trying to say. It doesn't matter if you are a tax collector, this dumb with this gum, like... Like Zacchaeus, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile doctor like Luke. There's everybody belongs in the room with Jesus. That with Jesus, the excluded become the included, you see. This would have been the biggest deal in the world to a Gentile doctor like Luke. Think about what Luke liked to do. Luke liked to heal people. Luke liked to make people well. But what he had in common with Zacchaeus... It's everybody, because he was a Gentile and Zacchaeus was a tax collector, everybody they touched, they did what? They made them unclean, right? So here is a doctor, he likes to make people well, he likes to help people, he likes to fix people, and yet every Jew would run away from him because they thought that his very touch would defile them. Because he was a Gentile and he was on the outside looking in on the promises, he was excluded from the special relationship that God had with his people. But what did Jesus say to Zacchaeus? He said something to Zacchaeus that meant the world to Luke. He says, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is what? Is what? 
a son of Abraham, a son of the promise. God had made a promise to Abraham that he had credited to him his righteousness by his faith. And he had made a promise to him that through him, through his seed, there would be a nation more numerous than the stars of the sky. And they would be a blessing to every nation on earth. And guess who was one of those nations? One of those nations is a man named Luke and a man named Zacchaeus who now the seed of Abraham has visited. And the seed of Abraham comes to him. He doesn't just say that you are an outlier. We're going to let you in but hold our nose. He says, no, no, no. You, O Gentile, you, O tax collector, you who were sons of perdition are now very much sons of the promise. And what Jesus is showing is that he is the gate through which every man, every woman, every child can enter and then enjoy the promises of God. Oh, he's a narrow gate, he tells us. You can't take your favorite sins with you. You can't take all of your baggage with you. You can't take all of the things that have went wrong with you. All of those things have to be laid down. It's a hard gate, he tells us. It's a a gate in the shape of a cross where the old person has to be crucified with all of your desires and all of your values and all of the way that you live for yourself. It's a hard gate. Oh, but brothers and sisters, when you walk through the narrow gate and you nail it to to the hard gate, what you find is that now you have been set free and you are included in the kingdom of God, included in the house of God, welcomed by the Son of God. That the most excluded among us become the most included in the people of God. And church, that's the kind of church we have to be. Iron City, that's who we're going to be. You know, I, being in the church world, people come to you and they say, you have a visitor. And they, they fit the profile, right? They have all the, they're well known in the community. They're, they're known to be able to give a good contribution to the church that you can do more ministry and be well. They raise your standing. And you know what people come and they come and they say this. They say, hey, Cody, Cody, that's a prime prospect right there. That's a prime prospect. Like we need to make sure we go after them. We need to make sure that they end up here because if they end up here, our church is going to be better off for it. Oh, brothers and sisters, we don't have prime prospects. We have anybody that will come through the gate of Jesus. The ones that, it doesn't matter if they raise or lower our standing. It doesn't matter if people think well of us or low of us. It doesn't matter if they can contribute a lot to the church or if they need to receive a lot from the church. The only thing that matters is will they come through Jesus? Will they come through Jesus? Church, can we be the kind of church that doesn't have prime prospects? Can we be the kind of church that doesn't go looking for the rich young ruler, but instead is on the mission to find Zacchaeus and the poor rich man, the poor man Lazarus? Can we be the kind of church that goes after the outlier that looked excluded from the promise and show them the gate of Jesus? Oh, would Jesus the excluded become the included and the avoided become the sought? Has it ever occurred to you, the gospel, what the gospel of the outcast teaches us? That Jesus came looking for the very kinds of people that we look to avoid. Jesus came looking to find the very kinds of people that we look to avoid. What we should see here in verse 10 is that verse 10 is really a summary, not just of the story of Zacchaeus, but of the entirety of the gospel of the outcast, beginning in chapter 9, verse 51, and going all the way here to chapter 19, verse 10. And so he says there what he came to do, why he came. 
He came to do what? To seek and to save the lost. Now, in his mind, I want you to think what that means. It means every person that he's referenced over the course of this journey to Jerusalem. He's referencing the prodigal son, and he's referencing the rich brother. He's referencing the rich young ruler, and he's referencing the tax collector Zacchaeus. He's talking about the good Samaritan and the Samaritan leper and the children that everybody else wanted to turn away. He's talking about the, the, the woman who was, who was disabled, and he's talking about the, the poor man Lazarus. All of these were the lost that Jesus came to pursue. All of these were the outcasts that nobody else wanted, and every single one of them would have been understood in their culture to have been bearing the curse because of their sins. The reason that you were poor, they thought, is you had sinned. The reason that you were blind or disabled is because you had sinned. The reason that you were excluded from the temple was because you had sinned. Oh, but Jesus, Jesus came and he said, I'm looking for the ones that everybody else thinks is cursed. I'm looking for the ones that everybody else thinks is unclean. And I am going to make them blessed. I am going to make them well. They may be excluded from the temple, but they are welcome in my kingdom. This morning, I wonder if you're running from God and you think there's no hope for you. You know what Jesus did? He came for the prodigals. I wonder if some of you are stealing from your company right now and you think you're in it too deep and there's no way and there's no hope. Jesus came for the tax collector, man. I wonder if you're the one that always feels like you're on the outside looking in in every room, that you're the social pariah that nobody else wants to have to do with you. Jesus came for the Samaritan leper. I wonder if you're the one that believes that you're too insignificant for anybody to care about or to notice. Oh, Jesus came for poor Lazarus and he came for the children too. Jesus came for you. Jesus came looking for you. The question is, will you receive him. Will you receive him? Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.